welcome to our podcast for Hurricane Season 2020, our third year, Luke. What do you think? Uh, yeah, here. here we are, back again. And uh, the off-season always goes by too quickly. That just flew by, especially with this early start that we've been having. Well, that and COVID-19 and what a yeah. uh, crazy year so far in so many ways. All right, we'll talk about the weather situation going on here and uh, lots of things today, lots of things, but... We're going to uh, talk in just a moment with the Director of Emergency Management in Monroe County, which is essentially the Florida Keys. Shannon Weiner is her name, and she's new to the post. She's been the deputy there, so she's not a newbie in the Keys or anything like that. But we'll talk to her about how they're handling COVID-19 and the situation and how they're recovering from Irma and how all this is fitting together with hurricane season, of course, just about to get underway. We're recording this on Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, you can get the latest weather, of course, by tuning into Local 10, Channel 10 in South Florida, local10.com on the internet, the Local 10 Weather Authority app, look for Weather Authority, and you can always get the latest on the tropics on the Max Tracker app. And we're doing this today by Skype. So if uh, for some reason we get a little breakup in it, stick with us because um, you know, it's the modern world and uh, and that's the way it is. All right. Uh, so you were in the office today when Bertha mm -hmm. came and went. Um, 50 mile an hour storm made landfall on the South Carolina coast. So, so uh, you know, what do you think about this this um, season so far and Arthur and and now Bertha developing? Uh, what's that Interesting. Type? Yeah, interesting. And today is a little storm that could, you know, it, it really it kind of had its work cut out for it. the thing was so close to land. You you know, land interaction was it was outlined by the Hurricane Center just yesterday. There was some shear and, it, you know, just a couple days out. It didn't look too likely. And then yesterday it was like mm, probably not going to happen. And then today we get a tropical storm that makes landfall uh, east of Charleston. So uh, one of those storms that just was able to overcome. And I would like to know the shortest lifespan of a tropical storm. This one has to be in the running. It was what, four hours from a non-developed system to a tropical depression. So interesting yeah, I think there. But. This is going to make a run for it uh, for sure. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But but the thing is that these very small storms, I mean, it's a little tiny, the core of that was almost uh, an MCV, right? It was, you've probably yeah. seen MCVs in, in the Midwest, uh, complex of thunderstorms that were rotating that wasn't, you know, was maybe even bigger than that. I don't know. That thing was so, the, the core of that storm was so small across. So, so that all fit over the Gulf Stream. There was a little pocket of favorable enough air and um, there was enough spin to, to get it going. I, I guess, you know, the dynamics there are similar to these things you see, small rotating complexes of thunderstorms that we see around here sometimes when we get Strong thunderstorms over the warm water. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is part of the reason why these, you know, really big chunk of the reason why these storms have been firing early is because of that, you know, non-tropical relate that that subtropical jet stream, things that help fire wintertime type storms. And that's been really odd here lately. It's been south and that helps spawn Arthur. And then we have this big cutoff low now that's over Texas. Uh, but with Bertha. It, we had so much rain and so much convection 
over the past couple of days. Here in South Florida, we had up to 15 inches of rain in three days. That's like three Mays worth of rain in three days. It's been remarkable. So how much of a role did that play in boosting this and warming the mid-levels of the atmosphere and giving it the tropical characteristics? Did that play a big role? Well, I think it was the, like you said, convection, which is really thunderstorms. So when you get big thunderstorms, you get a lot of lifting air. That lifting air, if it all kind of congeals, pulls in air around it, the spinning of the earth, especially when we're up at our latitude, that's pretty far north. You get a bigger effect from the spinning of the earth than you do farther south. So um, under the right circumstances, with the if the water's warm enough, you know, you can get the combination, like you say, of the thunderstorms and and the uh, warm water, you can get these small storms to form. But your point about the jet stream this year, I think, is important. We have a very strong subtropical jet stream, which is the uh, river of air in the upper levels of the atmosphere that's coming across the Gulf, coming across here, which puts a lot of energy in the atmosphere, uh, an unusual amount of energy, which is really more a June weather uh, pattern than a May weather pattern traditionally, right? June for many years was the rainiest month in South Florida on average. Now it essentially is neck and neck with September, depends on how many tropical systems we have. But in June, the reason that it's a rainy month is because you have this strong jet stream that can come down and essentially mix the wintertime cold weather systems from the north with the tropical air that's pushing up from the south, and we become the, the battle zone that just really set up earlier this year. So the question that is going around and what everybody's talking about at work is, 2020 has been bad enough, and I have a bad feeling about this hurricane season. We've already had two storms. So does this early active season, this early start, you know, uh, with these kind of subtropically small little systems that are, you know, on this battle zone, does that mean anything for the rest of the season? No, because the, the factors that are causing these storms to form are more, as you said, the wintertime factors. It's got to do with the jet stream. And these, the jet stream has really nothing to do with big hurricanes. So the fact that, as a matter of fact, if we could get the jet stream to stay down here, I think people would take heavy rain every uh, day if they could avoid hurricanes. Yeah. <laughs> right? So the, the jet stream actually keeps the hurricanes away. And, and that's why we don't normally have very strong storms in June, because the jet stream is kind of a negative on storms uh, developing and the jet stream is generally farther south in June. So the, the factors that have made Arthur and made Bertha are not conducive to big hurricanes and tropical systems that form in the Atlantic and move this way. So there is not uh, a correlation there. And by the way, you know, this feels like such a freaky thing, but it's happened several times in the past that uh, you have more than one storm. As a matter of fact, in 1908, there were two hurricanes before June 1st that formed. Wow. Uh, one of them uh, was a Category 2 in the Eastern Caribbean, and the other was a Category 1. Uh, it was a, like a tropical depression offshore of South Florida, but as it moved north, it actually hit Cape Hatteras as a Category 1. So it happens. It just, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't uh, doesn't predict anything. It's just one of those ways that the weather patterns developed this early in the year. 
Yeah, even 2016, we had it was a January hurricane, which is really right. a leftover of 2015. Right, so exactly. it's a different animal. But then there was another preseason storm in 2016. And then 2012 was another year where recently we had a couple of uh, May tropical storms. And uh, so you just look at all that. And, and it's it, the other question is, and I know that you have strong opinions on this, is the hurricane season hasn't even started yet. <laughs> right. Some like some arbitrary date that's been right. chosen at June 1. Um, but but these are not the 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 ones that are really life threatening. Uh, this isn't the the real meat of hurricane season. So the the discussion of moving the start date uh, has come up, and it, it just it doesn't really make sense, does it? No, it doesn't to me because we you know we name storms by a criteria, and nominally forty miles an hour is the criteria by which they get under which they get named. And these days we know when the winds are 40 miles an hour, we have all kinds of monitoring that we don't know. Bertha probably never would have been named back in the day before yeah. there was Doppler radar, right? Uh, we didn't have an aircraft in there today. So it was basically a Doppler radar named storm. So, and it was a small thing and it was right by the coast and it was heavy thunderstorms, gusty thunderstorms, but we get more than 50 mile an hour winds and gusty thunderstorms here all the time. So the idea of hurricane season and people being ready by June 1st for the possibility of a strong, really life-changing event or significantly damaging event still feels right to me. In actual fact, you look at the you know high likelihood is, is it's really not until August that that's going to happen. We've only had one significant hurricane in June, even. So, and rarely in, in July, but sometimes more likely in July. And then it's really August <laughs> is when, when the danger starts. So, you know, these, these, these uh, thresholds are, are man-made thresholds anyway. There's nothing magic about 40 miles an hour, although they chose it. I mean, it goes way back to Admiral uh, Beaufort and the Beaufort scale of winds that mariners used when they used it to determine what kind of sails they should put up for various wind conditions. And originally it was just looking at the state of the ocean surface as a guide. And that's what Admiral Beaufort, I want to say in 1811, British Admiral, uh, came up with it. So these divisions were set way back then. But generally the 40 mile an hour threshold, that's when things start going wrong. You know, branches start breaking Driving becomes dangerous, high profile, uh, things can blow over. So it makes makes a little sense to use that threshold, but it's it's not Mother Nature didn't, you know, pick that threshold. Can I I want to ask you a question, get your opinion. So obviously we had a tropical storm today and when you have a tropical storm uh warnings get issued and for good reason you know to uh, to alert the public but from a purely communication standpoint not a scientific you know semantics standpoint is it uh was is it a good practice to hoist tropical storm warnings you know an hour before a landfall and does that have impacts of, well, we've been through a tropical storm already this season. It wasn't that bad. Or, or is that, you know, from just a pure communication standpoint, the right way to go? What do you think about that? I think, I think it's a problem from a general communication standpoint. The problem is that there are people for whom that that is important. And they're mostly mariners, right? They're mostly people that are on boats or, or professionally, you know, go out on boats and, and so forth. So, 
there is a, uh, you know, it, it is a pretty strong flag they're waving there saying that the conditions, uh, you know, serious conditions are coming. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 I know but, why they do it, but I don't disagree with the premise for most people. The idea of of putting up these tropical warnings probably does cause a little bit of a, uh, a dent in their their alertedness with the next time they come. However, having said that, all the evidence shows that when an extreme event is coming, when a hurricane is coming, that uh, this talk about, oh, I, I went through it, I, I, this, that tends to go away. The, you know, there's been some pretty good research on that. It doesn't 100% go away. There's a group of people, 20% of the people or so, that are really hard to convince of anything. But among uh, most people, that they really address the event at the time that it's happening. And it's not, uh, you know, the idea of, of the, the kind of dulling of the alerting that goes on when you have a Bertha kind of situation uh, is does not appear to be a significant significant effect for most people. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, everybody, you hear hurricane threat and you, the talk stops, you know, it's, yeah. it's time to take action. I think people, uh, it, that word carries so much weight to it right. um, that people obviously take it seriously. Yeah. Now, not that, by the way, not that uh, it isn't a serious problem because the most significant storms in history of the United States, the Category 5s, I shouldn't totally say the most significant because the Great Miami Hurricane was a Category 4. But but the four Category 5s that we know of to, to hit land were all tropical storms a couple of days before. So, you know, they were all just barely hurricanes. So, uh, you know, this is why we pay attention to tropical storms in the heart of the tropical season, because they can spin up into very strong storms quickly, unlike the one today. Sure. Right. All right, let's yep. talk about uh, the hurricane season forecasts because goodness knows there are a lot of them out there anymore. Um, but <laughs> but they, they all tend to show uh, somewhat above average uh, activity in the Atlantic, Caribbean, and the Gulf of Mexico this year in terms of named storms. But that gets to the question of what is average, right? And how averages are taken in in a weather world, right? You have this 30-year band of time that mm -hmm. is given to be the average, right? And so right now, the 30-year band of time we're working with is 1981 to 2010. After uh, this year, we'll move ahead 10 years and we'll have a new 30-year band of time, right? So if you use the old 30-year band of time, you end up with 11 or 12 average name storms. You use the new one, and Dr. Phil Klotzbach calculated this for me just the other day, you get more like 14 storms as the average, you know, from 1991 to 2019, right? So uh, if we're talking about uh, NOAA's forecast was, what, 13 to 19 name storms? All right, so 16 being the middle there. So somewhat above average um, seems to be the, the consensus. And I also asked uh, Phil Klotzbach, by the way, how many storms he thinks 
have been added by modern technology. You know, in the very short time period, not 30 years, but in the very short time period where we have these high resolution satellites and so forth. He thinks too, my, my sense is that it may be three or in some years four that get added that we wouldn't have, have done before. Like, well, didn't we have one last year, Pablo? It was a little tiny hurricane in, in amongst yeah. a big uh, low pressure system, you know, Atlantic low pressure system, but in the center, a hurricane formed. And we said, boy, we never would have seen that. <laughs> you know, so, that was, so to be clear, three or four per year, per year. he thinks has been yeah. added. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so really I mean, significant. The thing, the, so anyway, it just kind of goofs with the idea of averages because the technology today is is so much different. Now that doesn't mean that you know the that when we look at the various things we look at for hurricane season forecasts, uh, for instance, the temperature of the Atlantic Ocean and the uh, temperatures in the Pacific Ocean and West African rainfall and stuff like that that they all are in the neutral to slightly favorable category. So that's why the, you know, I don't know how many agencies forecast it now. It's got to be, I don't know, 20 something, something universities and the weather company and of course CSU, um, Dr. Klotzbach and before him, Bill Gray pioneered the, this back in 1984. So, um, anyway, the, the, the bottom line is that the ocean temperature is slightly above normal to normal, certainly not below normal, the Atlantic Ocean. And it really depends on exactly where you measure and over what period of time you measure. Uh, NOAA was counting it as being slightly above normal, but if you actually look in the tropics, it's closer to normal right now. Uh, in the Pacific, kind of looks like it wants to be a La Nina, but the forecasts are to keep it neutral neutral El Nino conditions there. Some years they're up, some years they're down. The hurricanes are up and down. So it's not really a good indicator. And the other is the forecasts are for a little more rainfall in Western Africa than normal. And those thunderstorm complexes become seeds for tropical systems. So that nudges it up a little bit. So um, anyway, that's why the forecasts are up. So what, what's your thought? Are these a good idea? Are, are, are these seasonal forecasts a good idea? Well, yeah, uh, in my opinion, you know, people want the information. That's why we have seven day forecasts or 10 day forecasts, depending on, you know, if, not hurricane related, but just day to day. You know, people want information. Somebody's going to uh, put it out. And it's nice to know that we have uh, people that really understand tropical meteorology that give us a good look at the base state. You know, Sometimes these forecasts aren't digested well, or outlooks, maybe is a better term, aren't digested well by the, uh, you know, I see headlines for this year, and they say super hyperactive season, you know, all yeah, that. I didn't like that Noah used the word busy in the, you know, busy from the standpoint of the hurricane forecasters. Yeah, if you get, you know, 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 storms, yeah, you know, the hurricane forecasters are busy, but... It very specifically does not say anything about where they're going to go and how, whether we're going to be busy. I mean, we as citizens of 
coastal Southeast Florida. Sure. And that's, there's the problem. You know, nobody, there's no information in there that says, uh, you know, it's going to come for you and your spot. And that's how I think people can interpret the, the outlooks, but to have an idea that, Hey, the conditions are favorable this year for, we're seeing some, some things come together and it's looking like there are a lot of conditions to bring hurricanes. So we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared every year. Just like 1992 was a quiet year and you get Hurricane Andrew. But uh, I think that there's some value to be found in uh, looking at uh, you know the base state of the atmosphere and what it may mean for the rest of the hurricane season. The bigger question agree? is, isn't it, on the years that you have an El Nino like 1992 or actually a fading El Nino or you have some other conditions that appear unfavorable that people might take that as as a year to coast. I mean, that's kind of the the bigger issue. It's, it's related to the seven day hurricane forecast challenge. We'll talk with with Shannon Weiner and the emergency manager in the Keys about this in a little bit. But should the National Hurricane Center put out seven-day forecasts uh, or not, and they've been doing it internally. And the challenge is that sometimes they put out a a seven-day forecast, they make a seven-day forecast or a six-day forecast, and the models all take the storm way out to sea. This was the case with Hurricane Florence a few years ago. In the six- and seven-day forecast, all the models turned it north, never came anywhere near the U.S., but then five days out, suddenly, they all turned. And then after that, they were almost perfect on their track, taking it to South Carolina, uh, North Carolina. So so that's the, the sort of the same kind of thing. If if at six or seven days out, the, you know, the, the forecast shows don't worry, or if the seasonal forecast is, oh, it's everything is unfavorable this year, there's kind of a don't worry message embedded in that somehow that uh, is a little troubling, but I agree with you. I mean, what do you do? I mean, yeah. the information will be out there. I see your point, and uh, I can't disagree with that either. With the seven-day forecast hurricane, you know, discussion uh, for the track seven days out, is there, I would imagine that there is some correlation to the first forecast that you see and how that impacts your decision-making. So, for example, if you were to see a seven-day forecast that goes out to sea, that's the first one that you've seen, um, you could drop your guard. And the subsequent five-day forecast, even with the change, uh, could have some really negative effects. Maybe you don't pay as much attention to it because you've already seeded in your mind. It's not coming for me. It's changing. It's going to change again. Versus if you just have the five-day, the first thing that you see is that thing's pointing right at me or in my general vicinity, I'm going to take that more seriously. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's the, that's called anchoring. That's exactly what happens is that when people, especially when they get information they want to hear, they tend to grasp onto that, um, a lot of people. Now, there are other people, by the way, that do just the opposite. When they, gra- when they hear something they don't want to hear, whether it makes them fearful, they grab onto that and they stay yeah. fearful. And it's really hard to pry them away from the fact that it's going to be horrible, you know, and uh, so you have people across the spectrum, but but the the real dangers are the ones that people that uh, grab onto what they want to hear and what they want to hear first is don't worry about it, and uh, it's hard to to move them off that. I, I mean, I'm actually a favor of making the cone three days and after 
And therefore the cone is, is about preparation because the cone, the three-day cone is almost always in the right general direction, right? The farther out you go, the more often you get a cone that goes somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't alert people at four and five days. Uh, like this part of the coast is under alert. That's the way I uh, I would prefer to see the system. But, you know, what can I say? The, the horse has left the barn on that mm -hmm on that uh, front. All right, let's bring in Shannon Wiener. Shannon's the new emergency, uh, the director of emergency management in the Florida Keys, is actually Monroe County. She's not new in the Keys though. She was deputy director for the past four years, working with Marty Centerfit, who we've had on the uh, podcast here. And Marty was a great emergency manager and he just retired. They were both there for Hurricane Irma. And now we have COVID on top of hurricane season. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing in the Keys? What's going on here under this very bizarre situation we're all living with this year? Um, we're doing well. We're very, very, very busy, <laughs> but we are doing well here. Um, coming, coming through COVID-19 considerations um, with a partially activated EOC, um, and moving into hurricane season um, has kept us very busy. Um, and moving into hurricane season with the added element of uh, sheltering under COVID-19 conditions is providing us with a lot of uh, challenges moving forward. Yeah, but we're yeah. doing we wanna, well. We want to talk about that. But before we do that, just a, a moment ago, uh, we were talking about something the National Hurricane Center has been working on. And I wanted to get your input on it. And then we'll go back to the COVID-19 and this hurricane season. Uh, you know, internally, they do a six-day and a seven-day forecast. And I'm wondering what you think of that as an emergency manager in a very vulnerable area, knowing that six and seven-day forecasts are naturally not going to be as good as uh, we're used to forecasts being from the National Hurricane Center. Do you think it's a a plus or a minus? They're keeping it internal because they haven't made that call. Right. Well, I think that, you know, anytime that we can have um, more information further out to, to teach so that we can track and plan, um, the better. We, we know that the probabilities or the percentages of accuracy decrease the further out that we go. Um, and we know that our probabilities and percentages get better as we move closer to an event. Um, but the more information that we have to be able to monitor and plan for, the better. And I know you closed down. Let's go back now to the COVID situation. I know you closed down the keys for a while uh, in terms of visitors coming in. Did that work? Was that, you know, did that really keep, uh, do you feel like as, a, as an emergency precaution that that actually worked uh, for the keys? Absolutely, I do. What the checkpoint did was allow us to enforce our, our closure to visitors. And what that allowed us to do was to keep the numbers down here in the community for the spread of COVID-19. Um, we have very limited medical resources here. We have three small hospitals, um, none of which are a trauma center, one of which is still in a temporary facility recovering from Irma while the primary hospital is being rebuilt. Um, and so what that did was allow us to keep our COVID numbers down, keep our community spread down, and allow us to make plans 
um, and allow us to have resources to be able to respond if we were to um, come under surge con conditions for COVID-19. It allowed us to uh, acquire PPE, uh, test kits, um, make sure our facilities had available bed spaces and those types of things so that we can care for people um, if the need arises. So, Shannon, who was allowed to come in? I, I imagine that there are a number of people. I know some that have part-time vacation homes that are from Miami or elsewhere. How did you manage that? Were they allowed to come in? Yes, if you were a homeowner, um, then you were allowed to come in. So if it was your primary or secondary home, and if you were a partner um, in an LLC, a partnership uh, in a home or a trust, you were also allowed to come to your home. Um, and, and essential workers, so day workers, we did have come in um, from Miami-Dade. Uh, a lot of our labor force, and as you know, the, the governor declared construction um, essential work as well. So we had healthcare workers coming in as well as day workers in the construction field. So we were able to still continue to um, support our economy in a small way and keep things moving along. Okay, speaking of the economy, uh, the Keys are a paradise. I am enamored with the Keys. I just love them. And there are a lot of people are in the U.S. thrive, I imagine, mostly on tourism. So businesses, how have they fared? Um, right now, it's kind of early to tell, um, and, and we hope that with allowing visitors to come back into the community, because that is, you know, 90% of our economy is tourism-based, that restaurants will gradually um, fill up, hotels will gradually come back to life, and, and uh, the attractions that we he have here locally will as well. Um, and so the economic impact um, will gradually come back um, as we hope to be able to still have some some level of control on the spread of COVID if it is to return to our community. All right, let's go back to the, the hurricane planning you know, question. How, how has the COVID crisis and the, the simultaneous uh, situation of having uh, being under this COVID uh, distancing uh, thinking and everything else that goes with it, gone with your hurricane planning, evacuating, sheltering, all the other things that you have to worry about every year? Sure. In Monroe County, um, obviously, we're looking at evacuation times if we have to evacuate to an out-of-county um, shelter, which our shelters uh, we have, two are located in Miami-Dade County. Um, general population and special needs, both at FIU and... Um, and the fairgrounds, uh, the Miami-Dade fairgrounds, is where our general population overflow and our pet shelter is for Monroe County residents. Um, if we're looking at an out-of-county evacuation, we're going to need uh, additional time to do that. Um, many, most, and that will take evacuees from our county to Miami-Dade and we are going to have to socially distance on those buses and disinfect between, between trips. Um, so evacuation is going to take a little bit longer. And then in county, we, you know, we, we evacuate in county for a category one or a low two. Um, and the in county sheltering is going to be different as well as that, the Miami Dade. Um, you know, we encourage people to shelter at home when they can, but all of the Florida is vulnerable to storm surge. 
Um, so does that mean does that does that mean um, that you're going to have uh, lower capacity in the shelters uh, essentially? Well, not lower capacity. Uh, we would if you mean by lower capacity, you mean fewer numbers allowed to. Yeah, fewer numbers of total people allowed in the shelters. Of total you know. shelter Um No, not at all. In Monroe County, traditionally, our community has um, been very proactive in um, in sheltering together at home or sheltering um, out of county. But in county shelters, um, we have. So far, our traditional numbers, uh, the space that we use at our shelters, which are all schools, has been just taken up in the cafeteria and gymnasiums. Um, because our schools are all Cat 5 win rated, we will be able to move, uh, move individuals uh, further into the school facility. So allowing for the social distancing space, allowing for a greater square footage per person or family um, that needs to be sheltered, um, we have available the use of um, the libraries, classrooms, those types of things. Um, and part of those plans include uh, health screening and temperature checks for those that come to our shelters, you know, utilization of hand sanitizer and wipes, um, the increased space allowed per person, increased screening. And if we have people who fall ill, um, we have available in the schools, you know, the classrooms are available to use for isolation areas. So those are a lot of the things that we are taking into consideration and putting into place as, as we open shelters this hurricane season. Shannon, do you think that people may be less likely to evacuate with the COVID concerns? Just thinking about it logistically, they may be, you know, not wanting to go to a shelter or even to a friend's house. They, they're not comfortable with it because of the concern. Is that, what are your thoughts on that? I think that is, uh, I think that's, um, reasonable. I think that is a concern that many people might have. Um, and we want to share with them and know that, um, of course, if you need to come to a shelter, we are here for you. And, and we're making it safe so that um, you can be here and you can have a safe haven uh, because we don't want anyone to be left behind or left in an unsafe situation. Um, if you need shelter, we will be here for you and, and space will be available. So that kind of adds another layer to communications, right? First of all, you have to convince people in the Keys that they really should leave if you have a significant hurricane threat, and you have to convince them that it's safe to do so under these unusual conditions of really not, not wanting to be close physically to people that you, you, don't, uh, you know, that you don't know and you really don't know what their situation is. Have you thought about how you're going to explain that? I mean, it feels like a daunting communications challenge. It is. Um, and we have done some preliminary messaging thus far. You know, we have um, a, a graphic that shows what sheltering would look like um, to kind of set the expectations. Um, we do encourage them that if they can shelter at home or find another safe haven to do so, but that the shelter is there. And to expect that you will be required, you know, to have a temperature check and a health screening and to expect, you know, increased space usage and, um, you know, maybe grouping by family members. You know, we have the ability with the classroom to maybe divide a classroom up into three into three and be able to put, you know, family members in there that have been in contact with each other or close friends or that type of thing. So sheltering is taking on um, a complete 
a new look um, with additional protective measures. And, and we have some graphics to communicate that so that people know that, okay, there is a plan and I can be safe. I think you touched on this already, but uh, just to go back to it, uh, the shelter is, is the main shelter for the keys still FIU and have they made any changes there? Um, no, they have not that. Yes, you're correct. FIU is still the shelter. Um, and we, for both our special needs and our general populations, um, traditionally we use the recreation facility there as they have, um, a generator, uh, that can help provide backup power. And our overflow is the Fuchs pavilion at the fairgrounds. And if you also have a pet with you that you need to bring to a general population shelter, um, we we request that Miami-Dade open the Fuchs for, for our Monroe County residents as well so that they have a place to shelter with pets. So, so let's talk about the evacuation dilemma in the Keys in general. You know, hurricane people, and we talk about it here on the podcast quite often, the great Labor Day hurricane of 1935. Everybody knows that. And there in the Isla Morada area, it was devastating and really an almost unbelievable uh, weather event. But I know you plan for not just the repeat of the 1935 storm, but all kinds of hurricane scenarios that could affect more of the Keys than just a relatively uh, narrow area there. Is, is there a part of the Keys that concerns you the most, you know, where uh, if a storm were to come kind of east to west along the keys and be a big strong storm boy you'd say we have to get people out of there because that we know is going to flood uh, you know or, or what do you um, you know what do you think about uh you know in 35 there were only i don't know 1400 people in the upper keys or something like that that mm. lived there right and then mm. the the uh, world war one veterans uh, were involved as well but but now it's thousands and tens of thousands of people i mean you know what what is the What's the the worst part of the evacuation dilemma? Is there a worst part of the keys? Um, I would have to say my most critical area of concern would be Key West. Um, they are the most remote. They are the furthest south. They have the longest evacuation time. Um, and the community is um, very um, heartfelt there. They don't like to leave. Um, and they would prefer to stay. And if, you know, Irma had just been a little bit further south, um, it could have been much more devastating um, in the numbers of persons um, that we see that might be impacted um, in the Florida Keys. The population is much denser there. It is much more crowded. The homes are more closely together. It is very low-lying. Um, so I think that... Key West is really is really my area of critical concern when it comes for hurricane season and, and in considerations for evacuation. Yeah, and back in the day, like way back, the old town part of Key West was Key West. There wasn't the part of Key West <laughs> that is uh, up closer to the mainland, uh, to the east, I guess. And that's the low <laughs> part, right? The low part is the new town uh, part of yes. Key, Key yeah. West. So that's, you know, when you go back and you look at uh, like the the most in, intense and devastating hurricane to ever hit the Keys was way back in 1846, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or Hickey West, not the Keys in general, but, but Hickey West was in 1846, but there was no new town by definition in 1846. So uh, those old hurricanes really didn't have the same number of people in the same low terrain uh, 
to to deal with. I guess that's that's the ongoing concern. Right, and that is where the the greatest concentration of population in the Florida Keys is is in in Key West. As you move um, further north into the upper lower keys and the middle keys, um, a lot of homes, while there is permanent, obviously, a lot of permanent residents, um, a lot of the homes are also uh, second homes and rentals. Mm -hmm. So the number of permanent residents that you have there is fewer and more spread out. Um, I live on Big Pine Key. We like to call it the rural key <laughs> because we're in the middle between, between Key West and Marathon. Um, so, you know, the dynamics of the population of the Keys um, changes as you move from one end to the other. And then, you know, the coast, those in, in the upper Keys and Key Largo are closer to the mainland. So they have a shorter distance to evacuate. Um, so giving them a few more options and making it a bit safer for them. But, yeah, Key West all the way at the end of the road is the biggest concern. Wow, Big Pine, you were right there with Irma. So speaking of uh, the Lower Keys and Big Pine and Key West, you know, after Irma in 2017, it was a mess. Uh, no water, no electricity, no communications. And that wasn't even, you know, the worst case scenario that it could have been. But I, I imagine that as it's bad during the storm because, of course, you know, you're going through a what ended up being a category four hurricane and communication and everything's down. But in the days after what life would have been like uh, living and under those kinds of conditions, do you think that that is um, something that is good to remind people about to encourage evacuation? And has anything been done to maybe prevent such a scenario from happening in the future? Um, yes, we've done a lot of work infrastructure-wise, the local utilities, um, and even the county with communication systems um, and the, um, the telecommunication tower systems as well. Um, all of that infrastructure has been hardened since Hurricane Irma. Um, and, you know, I, it's funny because I hear other people speak sometimes in the field of emergency management when they talk about hurricane season and they, they talk about Matthew and Dorian. And, and I kind of raise my hand and say, OK, well, Irma was still not yet three years ago. <laughs> yeah. And so Irma is very still real for us in the Keys. And we do remember. And, you know, like you said, look, it is a good reminder and it's not far from people's minds and hearts that that do live here. Um and yes, you know, like you said, in, in the days after, you know, you not only do you have the overwhelming, um, you know, heat and humidity and no breeze that you have, you know, once a hurricane passes through um, to have, you know, no electric and no water for a period of time is is really challenging and presents health issues, you know. And that's our concerns, too. We, we've already spoken with um, the electric co-ops here in the county and they've said, look, we have concerns about response in a COVID environment. We're not going to be, you know, move, able to move as quickly as we were before. And, and we're concerned about sheltering our people. And so we share with them, um, you know, our same tactics for sheltering in a COVID environment for general population as, as those with those guys as well, because, you know, they pre-stage their teams so that they can come in faster post-storm. So it is, it is really providing um, unique challenges um, for everyone here. After Irma, uh, one of the things that happened was people were just clamoring 
to get back and see their homes. Part of it, part of it perhaps, was that the communications was out for a good time in the lower mm -hmm. keys. But, you know, keys residents wanted to get back no matter what. They wanted to see what happened to their property and save what they can. And, and I know that uh, under uh, Marty Centerfit, you guys put in, in this program that essentially trained people to be, in some sense, first responders. Right. Talk about that. What's the, the status of that? And uh, what are your thoughts about how that would work uh, if we had a hurricane this year? Sure. Um, Marty Center Fit put in place a um, for people to, um, for residents and communities to kind of um, be there for each other, neighbor for neighbor, help each other out. Um, and, and it provides them with a basic um, education and, of course, preparedness um, and planning for response to an emergency. But it teaches them basic first aid and basic debris removal um, and just reinforces the basics of being prepared and, and living in a community post-storm and being able to take care of yourselves and help take care of others. So um, his idea behind um, bringing that, that program to our community, and it is in many communities across the state of Florida as well, um, but allowing them to be able to come in early after a storm so that they are trained to be able to take care of themselves um, and then be able to turn around and help their neighbor afterwards. All right. So, um, you, you, Shannon, you, you, you broke up for just a little bit because we're on a Skype connection or a Zoom connection, as the whole world is. But just to be clear, you've had a training program, and, and that essentially allows people to get past the roadblock, right? When they, when they come after a storm, under certain circumstances, they can get in before just the general untrained population. Correct. Yes, correct. And that would be, um, you know, when there when there is a certain level of safety that has been established in the community, we're not ready to open up yet. But allowing those that have had that, you know, basic training to be able to come in and help um, take care of themselves and each other, um, you know, they'll be able to get a head start on um, on um, taking care of their homes and their neighbors' homes. But importantly, a part of the program is that they volunteer also um, to be available to help out with county response operations. So it kind of really supplements the volunteer um, force within the community as well. Well, anytime you get a big event like Irma, uh, there's so much that can be learned from that. You know, some people knew before the event, but then other people maybe uh, they needed to be shown. But regardless, after a strong hurricane like Irma comes through, uh, bottom line is there's a lot of knowledge to be gained from that and things can change. Uh, have there been any other procedural changes on your end, maybe things that people would notice? Uh, from on the in the side of emergency management. Yes. Or, okay. Um, I, yes, I think that we have we have implemented something called we have a program called Alert Monroe, um, which we had quite a few people sign up for post Irma, and we've had quite a few more since COVID nineteen, and it is the county's mass notification system, which is re reserved for um, in times of emergency to communicate messages of importance. Um, so if we were in the event of a hurricane, they would be able to receive a message that says, oh, in, 
mandatory evacuation is called for, you know, tourists and visitors, phase one, you know, mandatory evacuation begins for all residents at, you know, 9 a.m. Wednesday. Um, shelters are open at A, B, and C. So that is one of the uh, biggest, most visible things that we have seen. Communications um, across the county has definitely improved as far as emergency communications go with the public. Now, the also advantage to that system is that if you were to leave the county and evacuate, um, it is internet-based, that you would be able to receive messages wherever you evacuated to. So you would know when it was time to come back into the county, when it was safe to return. So that is a really important tool coming out of emergency management that we have never had before. Um, and we're very excited about that. We have used it in COVID-19, um, and it allows you to know how many individuals you've reached and how many messages were delivered, um, and it and allows the, the end user to sign up for it and say, I prefer a text message, I prefer a, a, a voice call, I prefer an email, and it notifies you through your preferences until you confirm receipt. So we actually know how many people were able to reach out and get the message across to. That sounds very useful. I'm sure people notice that. I mean, that's, that's a big step. Um, you know, each year we, up until this year, we have, we're, we're, this year's a little different, but we've done hurricane specials with WPLG. And part of that, and part of my assignment has been to go to specific areas and they've tended to be areas that have been hit by hurricanes. So last year we went to uh, the Panhandle and saw Mexico Beach after Hurricane Michael the year before. We went to the Lower Keys and we saw uh, you know, the destruction from Irma. And it was it was interesting to me because part of the the message was the keys are open, business is back. Um, and then when we went to Big Pine and some of the surrounding keys, it was a different tale. It was it was more isolated, but it was really sad. There was a man that I met uh, that lost his whole business. It was a kayak business. And this guy has written books about kayak and he's passionate about the keys and he lost it all in the hurricane and it still looked pretty bad. How is uh, the rebuilding in Big Pine and surrounding Keys going today? I think that it's going well today. Um, you know, Big Pine uh, is still, like I said, we can still consider it a rural community, um, but the businesses that we had uh, before Irma for the most part have come back. Um, and one of the things the county did to help uh, those businesses out and the community as a whole was develop a long-term recovery group post-ARMA. And that group has not only helped with fundraisers and resources and fundings for both individuals and businesses in the community, um, and they continue to operate today with the intent that they are prepared to be able to provide assistance to both businesses and individuals in the community for the long haul um, post storm. So while they did a lot of work for the first two years post Irma helping out community me members and businesses, they have also continued now to kind of position and prepare themselves for the next event um, and, and looking to the community to see what their economic needs are and how they can, and how they can help meet those needs. And many of the members of that group 
are um, not-for-profits within the community. And it's kind of how they have come together. They still all carry out their day-to-day -day mission, but they also keep in mind the mis mission of a long-term recovery with its economic impacts and how they can support the community. Yeah, you really feel for the businesses that went through Irma and now they're going through COVID. It's just... Uh... It really is piling on. And well, we know, of course, the COVID puts a big strain on everything, including the communication system. I mean, you've had in the Keys, some radio stations go off the air. There's still, still plenty of radio stations on the air. But in general, do you feel like that you have a good way to communicate with residents and visitors uh, in the Keys? You know, communications today, we have so many different ways to do it. We almost have too many ways to do it, to be sure that you, you know, you get a coherent message out. Uh, but, but, you know, as an emergency manager that really needs to get critical messages to your population out, do you feel confident in the systems that are in place in the Keys to keep people informed uh, before, during, and after an evacuation? Yes, I, I really do. Um, just in addition to the technical redundancies that have put in place, um, we really have grown as far as a community um, post Irma with our emergency management website and our county website and the outreach that they have developed um, via social media. Um, we did not have a huge social media presence before the county pre Irma, but we surely do now. And COVID has really tested that um, regular discussions on the radio. I'm on the radio every Tuesday morning at 7.50, um, weekly updates to, pro, you know, to talk about COVID-19, as is our mayor and our sheriff and our fire chief and our county administrator. So communications during this event have been completely different um, as, as opposed to previous events. And then, like I said, with the addition of the alert Monroe and the, the ability to reach out and, and reach the community wirelessly um, and in, com in, in combination with the ability, you know, that FEMA gives us for the wireless emergency alert system as well. I think that we are very well covered, um, both if you remain in the community or you, you choose to you know, evacuate outside of the community. I think we're going to be able to reach you much better this time. All right, Shannon, that's great. I should mention that our radio partner is Pirate Radio WKYZ uh, that covers the keys. And, and it's always a pleasure to work with Jack Smith and Kim in uh, the morning there, and we'll be on there uh, regularly this hurricane season. Shannon Wiener, the Director of Emergency Management Great. in Monroe County in the Florida Keys, thanks very much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the ability to share our message. Wow, it's great to see that they're uh, making a lot of progress in the Keys and uh, have added some, some uh, post-IRMA improvements. That's really great. Yeah, sounds like a lot. I mean, that was a lot of storm to learn from, too. Um, but they've taken a lot of steps, sounds yeah, like. Yeah, when you think about it, I mean, yes, it was a Category 4 technically, but in Key West, it was really only a Category 1, but still it knocked out communications. And and in Key West, folks in Key West just have to remember that they are at the end. They're at the end of the water line. They're at the end of the electricity line. You know, everything has got to come from the mainland to uh, to serve them. So knocking things out is not terribly hard for a, a hurricane that even is worse up the keys. Yeah. And, and like she talked about, and I saw 
you know, some of this, but whenever, or at least I was speaking with people when I went for the uh, hurricane special shoot, just the life afterward, you know, you're so isolated in the keys and uh, just sounds so miserable. And I feel for people after events like that and, you know, just the evacuation thing. Go ahead. But, well, I was going to say, you know, the, the, it really is a lesson for all of us, though, everywhere uh, uh, that deals with hurricanes is if you don't have communications like they didn't have communications after the storm. Right. The cell phones did not work after Hurricane Irma in Key West, because uh, I remember with the Weather Channel, they were down there trying to broadcast and it was a freaking nightmare because you couldn't communicate. Right. And and that also happened in uh, Rockport, Texas, when Harvey came ashore. Uh, yeah. uh, one of the carriers, I don't remember which of the major carriers, had no cell phone service. In in uh, Panama City, there was no cell phone service at all on Verizon. Uh, in South Florida, we didn't have any internet service on AT&T uh, after Irma. So this, the fragility of the communication system, in spite of the fact that the mobile phone companies have really worked hard on it, is a major modern hurricane threat addition that we didn't have many years ago. So what's the answer there, Brian? Uh, hard lines? I mean, nobody has a hard phone anymore. Well, they don't uh, even that, maintain that... in, in much of, of the country and in, here in South Florida, they don't maintain the hard line system anymore. You know, all those copper wires that run from central offices that were part here of Bell South before that Southern Bell, they have have copper wires that ran into houses. And that's an expensive system to maintain. And if people don't have sure. those and they get their, either they don't have any kind of home phone, they just use their cell phone, or they uh, you know, have their phone with their cable and whatnot, and they get it over the internet, it's called voice over IP, then it doesn't use those copper wires. And if, if they're not being paid for, they deteriorate. So in a lot of places, they are not maintained. So there is no solution like that. And it really, you know, really is incumbent on people to have ways of being informed. And, uh, you know, the, one of the number one things I always tell people for a mini hurricane plan is to have a communication system plan with your family so that everybody has a phone number outside of town for Aunt Mary in New Jersey that everybody, if you're separated somehow or live in different, you know, somebody lives in Pembroke Pines and somebody else lives in Kendall, that, and you can't, you don't know how one or the other did, everybody calls Aunt Mary. Now, if you're especially hard hit, you may not be able to do that immediately, but eventually you'll find somebody with a phone or a police officer or somebody with a satellite phone, or eventually you'll be able to get a message out. And if you're, you know, your first call is outside of the area, outside of the area, phones work better because you only have to have a one direction call to get it to the satellite or however it's going to get out. Uh, then at least, you know, you can call Aunt Mary and say, let everybody know I'm okay. And they say, oh yeah, your brother in Pembroke Pines called and said they're okay too. So at least you get that off your plate and you, you know, you're not worrying about not knowing. So sure. anyway, that's that's a critical part of it. So um, next Monday, June first, hurricane season starts. I'll see you on uh, local ten on uh, Monday, and 
hopefully things will calm down and we can have a kind of a normal start to hurricane season. And next Wednesday, we're going to talk here on the podcast with Ken Graham, director of the National Hurricane Center. We'll talk about how they're going to work in this COVID-19 reality, what's new for the season, lots of other things. There are always things to talk about uh, with Ken, of course. So that's next week, next Wednesday uh, on the podcast. So until then, for Luke Doris, stay safe, be well, and uh, I'll see you, we'll see you uh, next week. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris, here on Local 10, and we'll see you soon. Thanks.